0: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, To B Corp or Not To B Corp. A blue chip startup promotes reusable packaging, the latest crop of global risks, and five reasons to be optimistic about deforestation. We are getting back to our roots this week on 350. It's January 25th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from the very frigid East Coast is Greenbiz editorial director, Heather Clancy. You keeping warm, Heather?
1: Hello. It's a little bit warmer today. It's actually melting, I think. It woke up at two degrees. Two, two. Degrees Fahrenheit on Monday. No, no wind chill, <laughs> and now it's about it's approaching forty today. So that it's just bouncing all over the place here, and I'm okay with cold, but not that kind of cold. I felt like I had moved to the Arctic.
0: Yeah, I'm. Um, I remember my East Coast days, and I, I can't say I miss them. Uh, for me, it's it's the moment you know it's too cold is the moment that I'm outside and my mustache freezes and you just feel it. You feel there's this moment where you just all of a sudden freezes it like in an instant. And you just know, oops, it's really cold out now. <laughs> I I'm don't not... have
1: that sort of occupational hazard, but <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I hear you.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I hope that, um, you manage to, to keep warm and cozy amidst all this. And, and, uh, you know, they say that, uh, in the new climate reality that we have, that, uh, The winters are going to, in the east in particular, are going to come later, but they're going to come on stronger. So this may be uh, the new normal, where nothing really happens until January, and then boom, there you go, polar vortex. It is
1: absolutely what has happened for the last several years. Exactly what you described: later, but more intense.
0: Well, thank God you get a trip to Phoenix every February. I uh, do. (laughs) Yeah, where, if if uh, it goes according to plan and according to tradition it will be sunny and in the mid 80s so in other words about uh, 40 times the temperature it was a f- couple days ago uh, for you um, but that's <laughs> but that's uh, that's that's something even even us uh, folks in the mild bay area where this week it's been sort of sunny and 58 to 60 degrees still look forward to that glorious uh, uh, weather and of course i'm talking about the green Miz 19 conference I worked the weather into a commercial uh, coming up February 26th to 28th in the aforementioned Phoenix, Arizona. So this week, it's been Davos, a lot going on. We'll have a couple segments related to Davos, and it's been interesting, Heather, that... um, Environmental issues are becoming increasingly front and center at Davos. It seems not that long ago that there was just a, over in the, this corner here there were a bunch of people talking about climate change, and Al Gore would show up, and there would be those those conversations. Maybe Bill McKibben, but now there just seems to be woven into into everything. The Japanese Prime Minister, the even the Brazilian Prime Minister or President, who has been you know fairly aggressive in let's mine the Amazon is backtracking a little bit on that and uh, understand, understanding or making it understood that climate is a concern. And so um, I've seen more articles uh, this week saying that the environment is, I don't know, front and center, although some articles say that, but at least it's much more present than it was. So that's uh, that's a good thing.
1: You know, it was kind of hit a tipping point last year. Climate was, it began really Dominating some of the announcements um, a year ago, we we did a piece. I, I was able to kind of poke into some of the announcements. This year, it seems part of the way that that they're they're getting pulled into this obviously is because of the the theme of inclusivity, right? Because we know that the, that the effects of climate change, the sea level rises, the hurricanes, the flooding, the the things that happen, um, you know, in big, massive storms and, and natural events, if you, if you want to call them natural, tend to hit uh, the, the poorest communities. So I think that's part of it, is, is the world leaders realize that they're going to have a huge humanitarian crisis on on their hands, they actually already do in some places, and that that is just why they have to be on top of this.
0: Yeah, and, and our colleague Shauna Rappaport had a uh, a really nice piece um, in her weekly Verge newsletter um, about uh, Martin Luther King. And of course, this week we celebrated Martin Luther King Day. And she st- uh, talked about climate change being the most urgent civil rights issue of our time and talking about uh, how the, sort of this equity issue that you were just just mentioning and, and how uh, some of the, the inspiring bright spots that she saw around sort of, green zones that are cropping up in in a number of places and and how uh, sort of a fleet electrification of heavy duty trucks uh which which has an impact on local communities uh around ports or along highways that that are inundated with uh, particulate matter from diesel trucks and so there's high high levels of of asthma very high levels in some places including here in oakland and some other uh things around equity equity in the clean economy and clean energy so it's a good week to be thinking about those issues beyond davos but yeah davos was part of this week but let's spend a little more time looking back in the week in review Speaking of Davos, we had a piece this week by an old friend of mine, Justin Adams, who just joined the World Economic Forum as their director of of the Tropical Forest Alliance 2020, uh, where he talked about the five reasons to be optimistic about reducing and possibly reversing deforestation. Now, that's a tall order in a world where, as I said, you know, the the new president of Brazil is talking about uh, let's exploit the Amazon for food and minerals and, and timber and, and the, the lungs of the planet, as some people see it. But um, he, he showed five signs that uh, things are, are, are going starting to turn in the right direction. Um, and, and one of those is that we're hearing more about the market signals, that um, market forces are starting to uh, push governments and and companies uh, to uh, look at uh, at deforestation issues and there was a, a something called the cerrado the manifesto from Brazil uh, which uh, enables agricultural production it, while also seeking to pr- promote biodiversity and more and more companies are signing on to that and a number of other issues so um, good news on deforestation. That's encouraging. I
1: think that um, many of the, especially the food and agricultural companies have realized that they need to be more on top of this. I mean, there there have been a lot of very well-meaning commitments to, to fight deforestation. And we've seen them over the past couple of years, right? I mean, there's been no lack of attention, but for some reason there has been a lot more attention in this past six Six months to a year, and part part of that's probably because of the Brazilian transition, right? Because we we do have a, a leader there who is whose intentions are questionable, and and many people are afraid that some some good policies that have been in place could could be changed or, or reversed. But it does seem like, from an industry standpoint, the the world is waking up and that they need to connect the dots, if you will, to, ag- to agricultural practices um, and so forth. And I, I do feel, you know, it's, it's interesting because the, the name of this alliance is, has the 2020 deadline in it, and it's pretty clear that we're very unlikely to meet the targets that we've set out. But we do have more attention to this issue, and attention means more intention in my world
0: and while we're on this topic, I want to give a plug for the 2019 State of Green Business Report coming out on February 5th. This is our 12th annual, and as we do every year, we name 10 trends that companies should be watching, uh, things that are emerging and growing or a year within the next year or two, and one of those is on corporate action on deforestation, and uh, it's a great piece, and uh, yeah, we'll be doing a webcast, free webcast on February 5th to release that report along with uh, our, our colleagues, uh, Rich Madison and Libby Bernick from True Cost S&P, who are our partners on this. So more on deforestation coming up there. But let's move over to uh, another story that is about new research finds that ESG, that's environmental, social, and governance screening boosts stock market performance. So, in other words, companies that are paying attention to being transparent and reporting on these things uh, tend to do better from a stock performance perspective. That's potentially big.
1: It's potentially big, and it kind of bucks the trend, right? I mean, there was always this sort of misconception, apparently, that paying attention to this could make you, could penalize you on the market. But this research uh, released by one of Europe's largest asset managers took a really careful look at uh, over a time period of 2010 to 2017 to to understand how companies that, that use this criteria performed. And they they found that, lo and behold, um, while earlier in the period it, they, they may have been penalized, now it's th- that is not the case. Specifically, buying the top 20% best-ranked ESG stocks and selling the 20% worst-ranked ESG stocks would have generated annualized returns of 3.3% in North America and 6.6% in the Eurozone. I don't know about you, but those are pretty darn good returns.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, as, as you said, it's, it doesn't affect all stocks, ESG screening, but the best-in-class and worst-in-class assets the top and bottom uh, 20%. This is a piece from uh, Michael Holder over at Business Green in the UK, and he said that, he uh, quotes the head of the quantitative research of the organization, Amundi that did this, and he said that uh, it's apparent that what they called extra-financial ESG risks, so things that are not directly related to money those risks have become financial risks, and that asset pricing momentum, in other words, stock prices, is in favor of ESG investors. So this is really big, and I think one of the challenges, and I'm I'm sorry to keep plugging things, but it's all relevant is that, also at our Green Biz Conference in February, we're gonna do a half-day GreenFin Summit, where we're gonna be bringing together uh, both corporate reporters, companies that are reporting ESG, data along with some big institutional investors talking about how to better align uh, what companies are reporting with what investors need. For all the information that corporations are reporting, it's still not all the information that big investors need to make the kinds of decisions that would allow them to achieve the kinds of results that were seen in this study. So it suggests that it's much more in corporations mainstream interest not just at the socially responsible investing margins to be uh, seen as leaders in ESG if uh, in fact their performance uh, is as good as this study makes it out to be.
1: Yeah and I'm just going to point out that this comes on um, at just the same time as uh, lo and behold um, a new letter from uh, Larry Fink the uh, investment big investment manager over at BlackRock you know they oversee he oversees $6 trillion um, in assets there. And uh, last year, he made headlines with, with this letter that really said, hey, you know what? We're looking at purpose now. We're going to look at social responsibility. We're going to look at what your organization is doing. Um, and so he's got sort of an update to that letter out. Um, his, his latest missive says, profits are in no way inconsistent with purpose, Purpose is not the sole pursuit of profits, but the animating force for achieving them. He also makes a case for companies to, you know, listen to their their workers more and to think about the social considerations that they have, um, and so forth. So it's, it's just it's um you know just more evidence that people that are making investments, um, big 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 investments, are paying far more attention to this.
0: And he said in this letter that. BlackRock is starting to screen or expanding their screen of non-Paris-compliant companies. So these are companies that are not on a path to uh, do their fair share of the Paris climate agreement uh, emissions reductions. It's going to apply by default to all ETF exchange-traded funds, mutual funds, and other broad index funds BlackRock offers. Unless an investor opts out and specifically wants to invest in those kinds of companies, so they're excluding um, companies that uh, just aren't up to par here on on climate change. So that's another, I think, significant move. So let's move over to our third story, and I'm spoiler alert. That's going to be another plug here because it relates very much to our uh, our GreenBiz conference, and that's it this week. Uh, Our good friend and editor at large, Bob Langert, uh, published a book uh, long in the making, I can tell you, um, about uh, his uh, almost 30 years running the sustainability program at McDonald's. It's called The Battle to Do Good Inside McDonald's Sustainability Journey. I've known Bob since uh, roughly 1990, and and have watched this journey. We've written hundreds of articles about McDonald's over those past nearly uh, 30 years, and um, and he really, you know, is a straight shooter as much as anybody I know. Uh, so we ran an excerpt uh, this week from the book, and he wrote an article that's based on uh, one aspect of the book around six insights for NGOs to transform corporate sustainability. I got to do an interview with Bob. Maybe for next week's show, we'll have a. Uh, I'll chat with him a little bit more about why he did this book and what he hopes will happen. But I really encourage uh, both companies and NGOs to read this piece because it it provides insight that both sides need to understand about how that interaction works. And just for context, McDonald's, with Bob's leadership, really set the stage for the whole corporate NGO partnership back in 1989, 1990 when McDonald's did something which still seems audacious, but at the time was, oh my God, so radical, which is they brought in EDF, the the Environmental Defense Fund, the environmental activist group that was original slogan was sue the bastards. Um, That was their founding slogan. Um, Brought in people uh, to better help McDonald's understand where it was we need, needed to improve with an environmental performance, and at the time, environmental performance was around litter and solid waste. And so, it actually, had uh, environmental activists uh, working behind the counters, flipping burgers, and 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 you know, doing things and understanding you know how a McDonald's restaurant works. They came up with a, a group of recommendations. McDonald's not only uh, met pretty much all of those, but added uh, you know dozens or more. and and sort of a, that was the turning point for the for McDonald's to become um, a, really a leader in in sustainability in fast food, which some people may say is an oxymoron to be a sustainable fast food company. But uh, if you accept the inevitability that there's going to be these restaurants are going to be around and these kinds of companies are going to be existing for the foreseeable future. We want, these companies to be leaders, and McDonald's, through Bob's work, has been leading the way.
1: Yeah, I have to say, I think, I think we're just looking at the different points that are made here, I, my favorite is number two: assume innocence.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: um, I just, I just love this because, as as you know, when um, here at GreenBiz we will write stories about um, the actions of a of an organization and, and, and things that they're doing to, to be better. And we get, you know, a lot of criticism sometimes. Oh, people assume guilt of large companies often and they, they are, are so willing to be critical. Um, and what, what Bob suggests is, you know, as an NGO, you know, why don't you come in with an open mind? Assume innocence, presume the company actually really does want to do something right um and 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 you're going to have more opportunities for creativity um you're going to start with a pos- positive and optimistic kind of place and i just i i love this one because like i said I, as as journalists we regularly hear from from or from people that you know are saying oh there's no way these people could do anything right well you know guess what you have to change and if it and you have to start somewhere so i love that one yeah.
0: and regarding the threat that i uh mentioned a little while ago of another plug um, Bob and I are going to be doing a uh, hour long sit down a fireside chat at the Green Biz conference in, uh, in February uh, to talk about uh, his career talk about some of the lessons learned some of the things that went right and uh, uh, what's great about Bob is he'll also talk about some of the things that didn't go right so that's a great opportunity to, to uh, understand and, and look behind the curtain for one of the companies that's been doing this pretty much longer than anyone else. So, Heather, you did a story about a topic that I just find fascinating around B Corps and looking at uh, one of the largest companies ever to go uh, B Corp, uh, Danone. And uh, what did you look into and what did you find?
1: So I, yes, the, the reason I picked Danone was was pretty simple. They are the largest, Danone North America is the largest B Corporation. They earned that distinction um, last April. And I was wondering, frankly, what, Happened behind the scenes in order for them to pull that off. To me, it was more a story of how'd you do this? Um, I love being able to poke into things like that in order to help others, right? So, I had a conversation with Deanna Bradder. She came out of White Wave, which was was one of the companies that emerged with the D- Danon, the uh, Danone um, North American division, right? Danone is a company based out of France. And so, these two companies merged a couple of years ago. And as part of the, the integration process, they decided to, to go for it, to see if they could become a B Corp. So I spoke with Deanna about the process and how they pulled it off, who was involved, who was involved internally, who was involved externally. And so that story is, is focused on some of the things I learned from it. I have to say, one of the, the most fascinating revelations for me was, so when you think about Danone North America, right, and we say that they're the largest B Corp, they are about 20% of the the, the um, parent company, right? So uh, that translates into something like five and a half billion dollars of revenue. That's, that's large. So many of the, the 2,600 other companies are very small. Um, you've got some independent companies in there, Patagonia. Um, and you know, and that's just, it's not just the fact that you, you have to do all these things process-wise in order to become a B Corp. You actually have to legally declare this, right? So that's been sort of the sticking point, I think, for many of the larger companies. So Danone North America is the eighth subsidiary of the company to earn the B Corp designation and now they are aspiring for a global certification. That's a pretty darn big deal by 2030. So uh, I spoke with Deanna about that as well as the processes that they are putting in place to earn that worldwide certification. So here is a
2: excerpt from my interview
1: with Deanna. Uh,
2: There's definitely opportunities to share in terms of the process. So not only do you have to answer a set of questions through the B Impact Assessment, as it, as it's called. Uh, you also have to go through several steps around a legal disclosure questionnaire and a mapping of the entities within your subsidiary or your, your business. So at the global level for Danone, we do have a couple of employees who are focused on bringing together the answers or information that could be shared across business units. So when questions are asked about uh, governance and leadership and how, uh, for example, um, how leaders are incentivized or how the board is connected to issues around social and environmental sustainability, those answers will be the same for all of the subsidiaries because we all share the board and the leadership at the global level. So there's definitely some synergies and opportunities to be made. What sets know North America apart is that uh, as nearly 20% of the global business, we are the largest subsidiary to be certified, not only within Danone, but we are actually the world's largest certified B Corp independently um, through our certification. So going through our process was incredibly unique, uh, and we had to do a lot of the work and figuring out of the process on our own because of the size and scale of our business. Many B Corps, um, as you may know, are smaller um, businesses or startups or independently held business units of larger subsidiaries. So we're pretty proud to um, be the largest certified B Corp in the world, and with it came a lot of um, exciting milestones and a, and a good amount of complexity as well.
0: So why is the company doing this? Did, did you ask them? You know, what's driving their desire to be seen as a B Corp?
1: So yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's actually part partly because it's a really in, in, important journey. Um, so I think uh, we I didn't really go over. Um, what it takes to become a, a B Corp. But but there is an assessment that you have to um, take and you have to renew that assessment every three years. Um, and it, it, there's like 200 points possible uh, in this assessment and, and you have to earn an 80 out of that. That seems kind of like minimal, if you will, but uh, it is tougher than it seems. And Deanna said that uh, her her company score was 85. So, Even even if they had not succeeded in being able to earn this designation, she said it was incredibly valuable for the entire integration process. So it actually they had they had set themselves they had set aside three years to to earn a certification, but as the as the two companies were merging in North America, this actually accelerated that whole process. They were able to to go through, pick apart their employee policies. um, they, they now have in place one of the most generous parental leave programs in the United States. They were able to look at the the, the two policies of each organization, the, the two merging organizations, and pick the best, if you will. Um, and I think there were about 150 people involved across the, the companies, as well as some external folks that I mentioned before. The um, CEO of Patagonia was um, sort of the lead on the external stakeholders. But for them, it was a, a great exercise in... In helping benchmark their strengths and helping understand the opportunities and helping put in place processes that really made sense one of the biggest changes for them was figuring out a totally new supplier policy so now they're prioritizing partners from the same reason so they're buying more locally um, you know from farms and, and other organizations they're specifically increasing their um, woman-owned and minority owned partnerships where possible uh, and they're they're really encouraging those partners also to buy into many of the the processes that they're they're adopting internally. Um, and one of the things that, that I think is really kind of interesting to watch moving forward, we've written about the sort of uh, soil carbon movement, right? So carbon removal, you can do it with technology, but you can also do it with agricultural practices that are better for the environment. And uh, Danone is really focusing in on that. And that's something that was uncovered as part of this integration process and part of that assessment. So this impact assessment, um, which you can find on the on the B Lab website, is a wonderful guide. So even if, you know, maybe you're thinking, okay, we can't change our legal language to become a B Corp. Even if you can't do that, it might be good to just pull down that assessment and really look at your policies, um, because it really did result in a, le- a number of changes for them. And Changes for the better. So I'll uh, I'll leave you with this clip, this excerpt from Deanna. Um, I'm talking about why the journey
2: was totally worth it. Any company of any size could really benefit from entering into a B Corp certification process because uh, whether or not you're a sustainability-minded organization, you can benefit from knowing where you stand and what best practice looks like. And even if you can't obtain all the points necessary off the bat to get to a certification, it'll start opening doors and awareness of what you should be focusing on as an organization. So have you considered uh, what uh, fair wages look like across your organization? Have you considered sourcing for more women and minority-owned businesses? Have you um, looked to strengthen your policies for your own employees in terms of health benefits and parental leave? And so um, the awareness that comes with entering a process like this is hugely beneficial and a really important place to start. Um, we'd all, I, I think I'd also say that um, whether or not your goal is certification and whether or not you set forward a timeline to start, that the education and engagement of your employees early in the process um, will enable everything to go a lot more smoothly. So from collecting the data to completing the assessments and getting through the audit, uh, the more engagement and understanding um, that your employees have, um, the easier the process will be. And I think overall, this is about being part of a movement and it is a, is about working together toward a model of shared prosperity, Uh, and it's a pretty powerful one to be engaged in.
0: Each year in the run-up to the World Economic Forum Annual Conference in Davos, the forum, in partnership with Marsh & McLennan Companies and Zurich Insurance, issues the Global Risks Report. The latest edition the 14th annual is just out and once again environmental risks top the list of issues with both the biggest likelihood and the biggest impact ahead of such things as cyber attacks large-scale involuntary migration and interstate conflict or better known as war so here to talk about the report is richard smith bingham director of martian mclennan insights hello richard Good morning, Joel. So this starts to feel a little bit like a broken record, doesn't it? You know, every year we've got the the sort of the same environmental risks topping this extreme weather events, uh, the uh, failure of climate change mitigation and adaptation, natural disasters. Uh, Is there anything new here? Or is this uh, just sort of a continuation of what we've been seeing for the last few years?
3: Well, in some ways, Joel, I think this really begins to emphasize the point this this very strong consistency of views around the the top risk concerns among global risk experts looking at that 10 year horizon. And I think that should, you know, that sends out a strong message to those reading the report. And in some ways, would you really expect that 10 year horizon, those views, to change on 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 a single at one year basis? I mean, certainly if you look back over the previous 10 to 15 years that this report has been going out, those top risks have actually changed from economic risks you know through to more geopolitical risks and now this strong focus over the last three years on environmental I think that says one that actually these risks are beginning to coalesce as the, as the top concerns and this is clearly borne out by the you know the broad economic impact of natural disasters that we've seen over the last couple of years you know particularly 2017. But even, you know, 2018 figures of you know 160 billion in dollars impacts, sure, lower than 2017, but actually among the 10 costliest years in terms of overall overall losses and among about the fourth costliest year since 1980 for the insurance industry. And I think at the same time, this is this is the year when you know, the IPCC came out and said we have 12 years to make drastic and unprecedented changes that are needed to prevent average temperatures from go, reaching beyond the Paris Agreement's 1.5 degree target.
0: So if the
3: message looks the same, it may well be that the message is really important.
0: The report says that of all the risks, it's in relation to the environment that the world is most clearly sleepwalking into catastrophe. What are you hoping will uh, this report might change? Well, I
3: think what really needs to happen clearly is that we have an international agenda here, which has become somewhat slowed down by a degree of political divisions in in the world at the moment. This is the agenda has been picked up strongly by at often at state or at at, at city level. And so this really needs to be sort of pushed forward by those, those authorities that have the energy and the enthusiasm to act around that. And clearly, you know, companies, large companies, small companies have, have a very strong role to play in, in, in that, and in, in terms of their sustainability initiatives, and indeed in thinking about how they may well be affected by the, some of the events that may well be coming down the pipe.
0: So climate change is one bucket of issues. Another is biodiversity. And the report says that the accelerating pace of biodiversity loss is a particular concern. And I'm curious, you know, biodiversity isn't generally seen as a business issue. Should it be one? I think it's one of those issues, you're right, that actually sort
3: of a lot of companies don't think that it actually, you know, affects them. But actually, if you begin to look down, you you know, supply chains, and look down, you know, to you know how you know crops are grown in terms of how, what is actually necessary in order to have a you know, f- you know fruitful ecosystems in in different countries. It actually becomes pretty pretty, pretty crucial in terms of that. And indeed, there are knock on impacts in terms of you know human health issues as as part of this. So I think it's it's one of those in the business world it doesn't have that sort of broad based acceptance. But clearly, there are as parts of the business world that actually have a significant role play in this area as well.
0: So this report is about risks, but the flip side of risks is resilience. What would you counsel companies to be doing or thinking about right now? Uh, and we, when we look at not just climate uh, re- resilience, but resilience to things like biodiversity loss or water issues or or many of the other things in this report
3: i think companies have really got to look at all the aspects of their business and think where are these issues going to touch not just my basic operations um, but also my markets my supply chain my supplier's supply chains so i think that's the first thing is to really look you know up and down the up and down the value chain around that the second i think is to understand the interconnection between these risks and other risks. That doesn't necessarily mean in, in a causal way, but actually in a sort of you know, parallel way. And I think some of these issues can act in sort of interesting combinatory effects. So take the, you know, take the, the impact for, let's say, an agribusiness that is both caught up in, you know, in, in tariff hike issues and an extreme weather event or climatic event. Now, the latter might, might normally be, or ordinarily be manageable, but in this context, might, but actually, be devastating, or recent events such as, you know, the impact of China banning the import of foreign, including plastic waste, to reduce pollution and strain on its national um, environmental systems, and therefore, or thereby, exposing the weaknesses in the domestic recycling capacity of many Western countries. So, I think that's sort of one example of issues where things begin to touch you know companies perhaps in unexpected ways. And I think another issue that has certainly come up in in the report and is certainly sort of quite sort of strongly felt in the world this year is the extraordinary levels of pollution in some of our cities. Now these are especially take place but not exclusive to um, emerging markets, and those are presenting some pretty major health issues and health system challenges. So I think not only is that a problem for companies, and their personnel in certain locations, but much stronger action being taken by municipal and national authorities may, you know, begin to impact in terms of how companies, you know, do do their business. And certainly, we've seen, you know, city authorities begin to act quite quickly on on some on some of these issues, um, quite decisively on some of these issues. And I think the last thing that I think is a key issue, and the report does, you know, focus on, is around infrastructure. And particularly infrastructure in relation to you know, sea level rise. Now that, that may feel like a, you know, a long-term you know, issue for, for, for some companies, but it's clear that not only that do 800 million people in more than sort of 570 coastal cities are they exposed to a sea level rise of 0.5 meters by 2050? But as we all know, a lot of our, our infrastructure, which is both which serves both coastal and inland economies, is likewise vulnerable to storm surges and, and sea level rise from power stations to ports to fiber optic cables etc and as, and as you know companies are you know pretty damn dependent on, on on this infrastructure it's vital that they begin to think about what are their exposures and the outages to those issues as well
0: well it's a fascinating report one of the things i gravitate to every year is on page 5 of this report is a global risk interconnections map that shows how food crises are connected to the spread of infectious diseases are connected to man-made environmental disasters are connected to failure of critical infrastructure and on and on. And it really does show the interconnectedness of everything. We will link to the report so you can download the, the free report. Thanks so much, Richard. Joe. Part of the news coming out of Davos this week is the launch of a new program called Loop, a consortium of about 25 of the world's biggest brands to test reusable packaging. This came out of a company based in Trenton, New Jersey called TerraCycle uh, that's uh, about... uh, 15, 20 years old that's been made a name for itself by turning hard-to-recycle waste items, things like juice boxes or those coffee capsules, K-cup kinds of things, plastic gloves, cigarette filters, lots of other things, into new products, and then they realize that, okay, so far so good, but we can't just recycle our way out of this, that we need to do something uh, more drastic. And so Loop, this new company, or a new program, it's, I guess it's a company in and of itself, a subsidiary, just launched, that brings together Procter & Gamble, Unilever, PepsiCo, Coke, Mars, Clorox, Mondelez, uh, Danone, and uh, Nestle, if I didn't mention them, um, UPS, and a bunch of companies to bring back the Milkman model. Now, do you know what that is, Heather? Does that, what does that mean to you, the Milkman model?
1: The milkman model means the guy that used to show up from Welsh Farms Dairy <laughs> at my house every, every week, a couple of times, with bottles of lovely milk, fresh milk, and butter, and cream, and so forth. We had a milkman. We loved our milkman.
0: And they not only dropped off the butter and milk and other products, but what else did they do?
1: They took back the empties and refilled them and then brought them back and so on and so forth in a what?
0: Loop! There you go. Yeah, there you go. And so what Loop is going to do and it, as it launches in uh, March and April, it's going to launch uh, initially in Ile-de-France, the, the area around Paris. And in your neck of the woods, New York and parts of New Jersey and Pennsylvania, I hope that that uh, Midland Park is part of that for your sake, Heather. But uh, they are going to be about 300 products all made with a new reusable packaging, the packaging designed for 100 use cycles that can be returned or picked up by UPS or some other carrier um, and refilled and cleaned, refilled and and, and brought back. And so this is a way of a really, really interesting experiment, potentially a game changer if it works, to bring back, uh, if you will, the Milkman model on steroids, so I, I was very been watching this. I've known uh, Tom Zaki, the CEO of TerraCycle, for a long, long time, and I've been watching the company. We've written about it from time to time, and Tom has been telling me about this. I spent some time with him uh, talking about the launch of Loop at Davos, at the World Economic Forum, uh, with uh, a lot of these companies, um, so it's, uh, it, it's pretty interesting.
1: It's exciting. Um I it's uh, it's interesting to me too because it actually makes me think about the Amazon um button program, right? So they've had these refill programs, you can just push a button and get refills on cer- certain things. It's a little bit different, but 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 the consumer has had their their mind opened a little bit with this this idea. So I'm hoping that especially um the, the people like you and and and, and me who have experience in the past, but also the 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 younger folks, the millennials will will ca- catch on to this. I love this idea. Um, it's definitely going to take work, but I love the fact that they're going to try it. And um, I am excited. I would really love to see this succeed.
0: Well, you put your finger on the, on the big challenge because you've got all these big brands with these products and you've got, you know, a... a P and G Procter and Gamble creating an Oral-B toothbrush uh, with a removable head, and so you it just, it's just 60 percent less plastic, and then you can, you know, the, the return the head, and they'll get a new one. Uh, I don't know if they clean and how that works, but or if they what they return that into. But there's uh, other kinds of packaging where uh, you uh, a deodorant where it's a stainless steel container. Uh, and, and somebody uh, told me they said it, it's ca- these products are often counter meaning something you'd be willing to put on your counter because they're very attractive, uh, and you want to display them or at least you're not afraid to uh, to show them off a little bit. Um, it's a stainless steel deodorant uh, brand, and then you get the refills. And, and these are again working with existing brands. In fact, uh, Procter and Gamble has uh, has turned to I think ten or so of its most iconic brands, uh, things like Ariel, which is a detergent in Europe, Cascade, Crest, Febreze, Gillette, Pantene, Pampers, Tide, uh, product, and Unilever also uh, with a, a number of its products, including uh, Hellman's Mayonnaise and, and, and on and on. Um, but the, the, the challenge is consumers. Uh, are they going to buy into this? Are they going to be willing to change their ways? Uh, uh, Tom Zaki, the CEO of TerraCycle, um, you know, is certain that they will, and he's making a big bet on that because he's tried to engineer a process that's very much like what consumers do. You buy things online or in a store, just as you always do, uh, and then you throw it in a bin at the end. It could be a waste bin or a recycling bin, but then now there's a, maybe a reuse bin Uh, that package either gets picked up uh, by a carrier like UPS or you take it back to the store and they're all scanned and you get the credit for these reusable containers and then you get if you want refills you get those if not uh, you don't have to but I asked Tom to talk about you know the consumer issue and whether they'll buy into it and here's what he had to say
4: so the first key thing we're focused on is making this as absolutely simple for the consumer as possible and emulating their current way of thinking. So the basic idea is it's the exact same outbound as a normal e-commerce delivery. It's the exact same. You get a box you know, at your door with your stuff in it. Though it's better because your box is durable and no waste and you don't have to worry about recycling all that cardboard and everything and your products are super awesome and you don't have to and you just have a better experience. But net-net, it's effectively quite similar. On the back end, we're trying to emulate the way you do your recycling or garbage at home, right? So you take the, uh, your use packages and you either put them in the recycling container at home or you put them into your garbage bin at home. And then you give that to your recycling company. You lug it down to the curb and your recycling company takes it or your garbage company takes it. Here, you put the dirties into a, into a loop bin, which effectively is not your recycling bin, not your garbage bin, but your reuse bin. And it's not picked up by a garbage company, but it's picked up by like a UPS or another carrier. And so it's trying to emulate to make it as similar as possible to your current disposable experience, right? no cleaning, nothing like that, literally throw it out. And then we try to upgrade it to make it better because that's what's really going to get the consumers by improving every aspect as much as we can. So the packaging, there's not all this corrugate and stuff that really pisses people off about Amazon or e-commerce. There's not all this, you know, low quality, you know, non-recyclable uh, or or hard to recycle uh, uh, or all this basically called single-use packaging. And when we pick up, you have the option to have it set to auto-replenish so that um, you can actually make your shopping even easier because your empties trigger your reorders. So we're trying to effectively make it as good as disposability, but ideally with some upgrades so that consumers really flock to this.
0: And in a similar vein, I talked to David Blanchard, the chief R&D officer at Unilever, which is, as I said, participating in this too. And he thinks that there's an opportunity here to tap into some growing concern about packaging and about brands with purpose.
5: Well, the data we've now seen is that around 25% of consumers are now buying products based upon the sustainable credentials of the brand that they're buying. Certainly if I take it more broadly as Unilever, you know, we talk about brands with purpose. So you know, brands like Lifebuoy, which is set out on an ambition to reduce lives through better hygiene. Brands like Dove, which is so that every woman has a, a positive experience of beauty, you know, domestic to, to make uh, toilets commonplace. So when we talk brands with purpose as part of our Unilever sustainable living plan, then brands with purpose we know are growing twice as fast as other brands as part of our portfolio. And, of course, those brands then, of course, have to have increasingly a sustainable uh, footprint. So we think that about 25% of consumers are today uh, looking to buy brands that have a uh, more sustainable footprint or clearly have a purpose that resonates with them from from a a broad environmental sustainable purpose point of view. And then there's probably another 50% of consumers who are then increasingly looking for brands to have that point of view or that sustainable footprint.
0: You're actually asking consumers to, to play a more active role, whether it's returning or buying a refill or something. You know, it'll be interesting to see how far consumers are willing to go to live up to their stated values around sustainability or plastic waste or whatever it is. I think you're absolutely right, and of course, that's why you know this is very much for all of us a
5: a new and an interesting approach. so we're 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 looking to to make our packaging more recyclable with high levels of recycled content. We're experimenting with no plastics for another part of our environmental footprint. Uh, this is just making an intervention in the area of reuse and refill. And I think time will tell whether or not the benefit of a reuse and refill system is of sufficient benefit to consumers that they will do their part of ordering from the platform, you know, using the products, putting them at the tow, returning them to LOOP to then be returned back again. And, you know, and time will tell. In many ways, it is what this LOOP program will determine if that uh, more circular approach to what we and we feel is something that has a, an opportunity to, to expand. So this is very much set up as in the first instance, the pilot uh, with a number of products and a number of cities. And of course, if successful, then of course, we will then look to scale. So move more products into, into more cities, expand into more cities with loop. So it's very much a, a very strong experiment, I think, with all of us would be uh, confident that it will uh, be successful.
0: So when we talk in, let's say, a year, maybe a year after launch, so in April 2020, what's the story you hope to be able to tell about Unilever and Loop? I think the most important metric will be the depth of repeat in the sense
5: of, you know, do consumers come back to using these products time and time again? So we would typically look to find a a minimum 50% repeat rate, so that uh, half of those consumers over a period of time come back to use the product at least once, if not two or three times. So we talk about depth of repeat. So I, I think for us, the success would look like we then have a, we've through the trial program, we've attracted a core of consumers who are now using this as their method of obtaining um, some of these uh, great products. And if that's the case, That will then determine its ability to expand beyond uh,
0: the initial products and cities. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350. And you'll find more about the organization, stories, and events that we mentioned in this episode. While you're over there, check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage. It's the best of live interviews from Green Biz Events. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe to one or more of our five weekly e-newsletters. Heather's Energy Weekly comes out on Thursdays, and my Green Buzz newsletter is fresh every Monday morning. And Heather and I will be back here next week. Me from sunny Phoenix, Arizona. I guess Heather from chilly Midland Park, New Jersey. But until next time... From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.